Well, I hope you guys had a wonderful Saturday today. Did you guys get any rest? Did you get some nice time off work, I hope? And uh, we're glad to see you all here and a wonderful time to study the Bible together. And tonight's topic is one that I'm really excited about because I think it's key to our understanding of why things happen like they happen in the world today, right? We started looking at that two nights ago. The war behind all wars. If God is so good, why is this world so bad? Last night we looked at the problem or the solution to this problem of sin, right? And we saw that it was the Revelation's lamb dying on Calvary's cross that would redeem us from this. But the question is, why is it that we still aren't experiencing the peace that Jesus longs for us to have? So before we begin, why don't we go ahead and bow our heads for prayer and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to be together as your people studying your Bible. Lord, you know that we're ignorant, that we don't have all the wisdom that we need, but Father, we desire to know Jesus more and desire to see Him clearly. Father, we've come here because we know that the book of Revelation is given to us for people in the last days, and you promise that there's a special blessing to those who read it and understand it and keep those things that are written therein. And Lord, we want that blessing this evening. We pray that your Spirit would come, that you would speak to our hearts and speak to our minds. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It doesn't take much to look around at the world that we're in to realize that we're in the midst of a war. Oftentimes, you hear people talk about that if they could have one wish, it would be that we would have peace on earth, right? And around Christmas season, this is a big thing. Or if someone wins a pageant, what do you want? I want peace on earth. But after people have longed for peace for so many years, we realize that it's starting to crumble. Oftentimes, there have been peace treaties made. How many of you know that there was a peace treaty made after World War I? Well, what happened after World War I's peace treaty? Well, World War II came. And then after World War II, the next war. And then the next war. And the next war. And it almost seems like countless, endless wars are still continuing on. And now they're centering, centering around the Middle East and all of, well, I can say the rest of the world. They're just really going mad. And so the question is, is how is it that we can ever, living in such a crazy world, experience peace? We don't only have the wars that are going on politically through different governmental systems, but we realize that there's wars in our very own countries, right? And we talked about this a little bit the first night with all the school shootings and the violence of people. And we think, why is it that people are so cruel and they can't experience the peace that God longs for them to? You know, the Bible talks to us about this and it tells us that there's a time that's coming and it describes it in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And notice this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 with me this evening. 2 Timothy chapter 3, towards the back of the Bible in the T section, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and then 1st and 2nd Timothy. And we're looking at 2nd Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. And notice when Paul is describing the last days, how it is that he describes it. Now we're going to realize that Revelation describes it very similarly, and this is going to bring us, usher us into the topic for tonight. 2nd Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, but know this, that in the last days everything will be just fine. Is that what it says? No, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Now what does it mean, perilous times? Troublesome times, right? Confusing times, rapid times, all these times of great war and great strife. And notice it continues on. It says, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, 
boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-respect, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than what? Lovers of God. And notice it continues on. It says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, and from such people do what? Turn away. Now, how many of you can read this description that Paul gives us about the end times and say, this is the time we're living in? I mean, it seems like everything in the world has gone crazy. That people are lovers of themselves. How many of you have met people who love themselves more than they love anyone else? You see, people are out of control. It talks about there'll be a time where they love money. You see people who are so caught up in greed and building their wealth that they let the person starve right next door. It continues on and it tells us that there'll be people who are disobedient to parents. Now, we don't see any of that in the world today, right? Only well-behaved children who are never disrespectful. Actually, I would say it's rampantly growing the disrespect amongst the younger generation towards their parents. And we see all of these things and the question is, if all of this is happening, how is it that we can ever have peace? Well, we realize that many families can't even have peace in their own home. Whether it's husband or wife fighting or children giving a hard time to their parents or to each other. And we see that all of these things are contributing to the factor. Now, something that's interesting that I think can be connected to the reason why we see so much suffering in the world today and so much unrest is notice the statistic. It says the average 18-year-old has witnessed 200,000 violent acts. Now, does that shock anyone else? I mean, to me, that's just appalling that someone would witness 200,000 violent acts on televisions and movies, including 40,000 murder. You know, why is it that there's no peace in the world? Could it be that because we're feeding the generation that now is, and maybe ourselves, with the fact that killing people is okay? that crime is okay, that all this perversion is okay, and we start to realize that the morality of the world is drastically crumbling, and we wonder, how is it that this can continue on? Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 gives us a principle, and that principle is that by beholding, we become changed. Did you guys know that that's actually not just a biblical principle, but it's actually something proven in science? There's something in the brain called a mirror neuron. Have you guys heard of that before? That while you're watching something happen, your body has the same chemical reactions as if you were the one carrying it out. So when you're sitting there and you're watching the television and you're seeing someone being murdered, your body is having the same chemical reaction as if you were the one committing the murder. Now this starts to make us think, what are we beholding? Because by beholding, we become changed. And we realize that in our society, there's so much corruption going around, and this is why we see the prisons filled with all of the people who can't seem to get control over their whole lot. Now, we realize that there's 2.3 million prisoners in the United States alone. Now, out of all of the prisoners in the world, the United States has one quarter of them. This is a drastic morale decline that people are not experiencing peace but much unrest. You know that this actually shouldn't be something that surprises us because Jesus, when he talks about the last days, and as Paul talks about the last days, we see that it's going to be crazy times taking place, and Jesus gives us a very specific reason as to why there's going to be so much turmoil going on in this world. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12. We looked at this opening night, but notice what he says. 
He says, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will do what? Grow cold. Are we seeing the love of many grow cold? The people who are heartless? We talked about the the woman who threw her baby into the trash compactor, right? And praise the Lord, someone saved the baby out of there and the baby was reported to be okay. And we see all of this heartlessness or, or coldness towards the indifference of other people and we wonder, how is it possible that this is happening? Well, the Bible tells us that there's a reason why the love of people is so cold. And why is that? Why does Matthew 24, verse 12, tell us that the love of people is growing so cold? It says lawlessness. Now, the word law is not a very popular word in our society, right? We live in a society that wants to believe that everything is relative. In other words, what's right for me might not be right for you, and what's right for you doesn't have to be right for me, right? We live in a very relative society, and also with the idea of law brings the idea of accountability. Now, we live in a society where we don't like to be responsible for anything. I was just reading about a story about some kids, I believe it was in 1984, they were walking on the roof of their high school because they wanted to steal the skylights out of the gym. Now, the first child was up there, or 18, 19-year-old was up there, and he stole the skylight off the top of the gym, and he handed it down to his friend. Well, then he goes to the second skylight, and instead of being able to remove it properly, he actually falls through it and becomes a quadriplegic. Now, that's a terrible story. The, the, The crime caused this man to lose the function of his limbs. But you know what's even crazier? is that the man, the guy who fell through the skylight, sued the school for millions of dollars and won the case. Why is it? Because I'm not responsible. It's your school building that caused me to fall through it, even though I was a criminal on your premises. You see, we live in a society that law is not popular. It's relative. Responsibility. Who wants to talk about that? But we realize that Jesus says the reason why we see all the corruption in the world today is because of lawless behavior. I think it's time that we need a moral compass in the world today. How many of you would agree with that? And I think that's why we're Christians here in this auditorium tonight, because we realize that the Bible is the only compass that we can have. That the Bible is really the only moral absolute that we have. You see, any of us can come up with a list of things that we think would be good, or that we think would be best, but what about we ask the one who originated life and ask him what would be the best way of living for each one of us? You see, God tells us that if we were to follow His way of living, that we would really experience joy like never before. But truly, our society has turned its back on God's moral standards, and that's what's caused the depravity in the world that we see today. It's no wonder, and we shouldn't be surprised, that we see all of the crime that we find. You know, in talking about this David the psalmist, many of you are familiar with David, right? David was a person who experienced a lot in his life. David knew what it was like to walk with God. David knew what it was like to walk away from God, right? He knew what it was like to go against God's will and to to do the things that cause pain and heartache and suffering. He even murdered a man because he was so caught up in sin, right? And we know that because of the sin of Bathsheba that took place. But notice what David says. David, I think, really captured the essence of what many people are missing in the world today. And notice what he says in Psalm 119, Verse 165. David says, Great peace have those who do what? Love your law, and nothing shall what? Cause them to stumble, or nothing shall offend them. 
Could it be that the reason why we see so little peace in the world today is because we've gone so far into lawlessness that we've rejected God's word and his law as the moral compass of our lives? Could it be that if we were to experience the, the safeguards of the law of God that we would experience joy more abundantly? Now, some people think, let's not talk about the law. You know, the law is a restrictive thing. Well, I want to ask you, to the train, are the train tracks very restrictive? No. There's no way that the train can function without the train tracks, even though it leads in a very narrow way, correct? And we realize that God has designed us to run on a certain course. And if we come off that course, we're really immobile and can't experience the joy that God intended for us. You know, some people might think the law that you have to put gas into your gasoline tank instead of water is a law that shouldn't be followed anymore. But what happens when you put water in your gas tank? You get a large mechanic bill, right? Because they have to fix your car because you just waterlogged your engine. And we realize that God has created us to live in perfect harmony with his law in order to have peace. Now, Tonight, we're going to see in Revelation why this is so important to God. But before we do that, why don't we just review what the law of God is and understanding how that really brings peace to each one of our lives. Now, many of you are familiar with the law that God gave and the law that was consistent throughout the New Testament, right? And it's the law found in Exodus chapter 28, or 20, um, verses 3 through 18, I believe. And this is the Ten Commandment law that God has given. Now, we're going to do something tonight that's going to help us to see, was this law something that was just important for the people in the time of the wilderness, right, when God gave it? Or could it be that God, through this law, is giving us something that will help us to experience peace and joy in Jesus today? So this is what we're going to look at. But before we do that, we're going to go ahead and familiarize ourselves with the laws that God has given for our own good and our own safety. Notice law number one. You shall have no other what? God's before me. Now, I want to ask you a question. What would have happened if Lucifer would have obeyed this one law? You will have no other gods before me. Instead of trying to be his own God, he would have just bowed humbly before the creator of the universe and said, I'm going to serve you and you alone. We wouldn't be in the mess that we're in today, right? And we realize that God's law really would have brought in peace. Now, it continues on. You shall not make any graven images and bow down to worship them. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever read through the Old Testament and you've seen the times where the children of Israel, the children of God, continued to walk away from God and go after these other idols and things of that nature. Was it a good experience or a bad experience for them? It seemed to always lead them further away from the true God of heaven, and it always led them into captivity, it seemed like, right? Captivity to Babylon, captivity to the other nation. And because of this, God was trying to let them know, hey, if you want to have peace and happiness, it comes from worshiping me alone. Now, notice this next one. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, I think we see a lot of this in the world today, right? We use God's name so lightly and so flippantly that it's not even a, a very big deal to us, and it's such a casual thing. But God says, if you really love me, you would reserve my name for only that which it was meant for. How many of you treat your spouse's name very casually and get away with it, right? It's not something that's a very good thing to do. It doesn't make the person feel appreciated. And God is saying, if you love me, do this. Now, notice this next one. God is saying, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, Mike talked about this a little bit in the health presentation, right? God created a day for us to take off. Now, what happens when we don't do that? We get so worried and hurried and you get a little more irritable and we start to push 
people start to push our buttons, right? And we get a little bit more upset. Now, notice all of these four first commandments deal with our relationship to God, right? So we don't necessarily see the effect of peace on this earth in relation to the first four as much, but I'm going to tell you they're drastically connected. But notice these next ones. Honor your father and your mother. Would the world be a better place today if young people and old people alike would honor their fathers and mothers? Could it be that we would live in a very different society that we wouldn't see about all the shootings of children shooting their parents or parents killing their children and all of this stuff happening if children would simply honor their father and their mother? Now, number six continues on and says that you shall not kill. How many of you think that's a good idea? Some people say, well, we don't need the law of God anymore. It doesn't really matter. Well, I want to ask you, I think that this is a pretty important thing that we're not going out and murdering one another because God is the author of life and if he can give it, who should be the only one who can take it? I think God should be the only one who can take life. Now it continues on, and if we realize that if we didn't murder, we wouldn't see countless innocent women, women men, and children killed today. Now number seven, you shall not commit adultery. How many happy family units would we see if this is practiced? And I understand there's a multitude of things surrounding this. Is this not pointing fingers at anything? But anyone who has been through a relationship that's been torn apart, you know that it's a painful experience. And when you realize that God's law, he says, I didn't want that to ever happen. I just wanted there to be great joy and happiness, not this division taking place. Now, God truly gave us these things for our own happiness. Thou shalt not steal. One of the first things that my wife and I were told when we got to Athens, Greece a month ago was you need to watch your pockets because there's some really good pickpocketers here. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really like living in a place where you're always worried about someone stealing something from you. You know, we're walking, locking our cars. How many of you leave your home on vacation and don't lock your home? Right, it's not something, oh my. Well, I won't, I won't tell you who they were because we, we don't want you going to their house when they're gone on vacation. But we realize it's very uncommon. There was two people out of the rest of the group here. And it's very common for us to realize that theft is on the rise. And God is saying, if you would truly just listen to my simple order of government, you would have life more abundantly. Now, Jesus also continues on and he says that you shall not bear what? False witness. Has anyone here ever been hurt by a lie? Has anyone ever said something mean about you behind your back and that you wish they wouldn't say? Do you ever think there were wars that were caused by people saying bad things about someone else? I mean, you see all of this going on and God says, hey, look, if you would just experience the joy of my guidance and my law, you would have life more abundantly. Now the last one, thou shalt not covet. This is where we would stop losing sleep over the things we wish that we had because we'd realize that what God gives us is truly the best thing in life, and we don't have to worry about keeping up with the Joneses. Now, what's fascinating about the law of God is that the law of God is the thing that is most under attack that we find in the book of Revelation. You see, it's not that God just gave it to us for our own good, but you see that Satan knows that if we follow the law of God and we follow the uh, commands that God has given us, that truly we're worshiping God, right? Worship means to give someone the honor that they deserve. You are worthy of my worship, is what we're saying every time that we're obedient to God. Let me put it in this way. If I want to give my wife honor and respect, and she says, hey, why don't you go ahead and pick up your jacket when you get home instead of just dropping it on the ground, what should I do? Should I be obedient to her? Or should I just say, well, it doesn't really matter what I do. You know that I love you. 
No, we experience that every time that we follow what someone says, we're giving them honor and we're giving them respect. Now, Lucifer, knowing this in the book of Revelation, we see that it was the law of God that really began to be a conflict between Lucifer and the people of God. Now, we, we saw this in two, the, the third night, that in Ezekiel chapter 28, that lawlessness or iniquity was found where? It was in the heart of Lucifer. Now, what is sin or iniquity? Well, it's lawlessness, right? Sin is the transgression of the law. And this is what we find, that from the beginning, the devil had sinned and rejected the law of God because he didn't want to follow what God said, but he wanted to set up his own system, right? Now, just make sure to stay with me because you're going to see something very interesting in the book of Daniel in just a moment. Now, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, if the devil had sinned from the beginning, this is just confirmation of the text that we've been using and saying frequently, but we haven't looked at yet, is 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, that whosoever committeth sin does what? Transgresseth also the law, right? You break the law because sin is the transgression of the law. Now, does it sound to you like Lucifer had an issue with the law of God? If he's there not wanting anything to do with it, if he's there trying to fight away from it, and we realize that he went around trafficking this idea that God is not fair, and really, if you want the best way of life, you need to follow me, right? Isn't that what Lucifer was telling people? And as we see that this was the agenda, we realize that Satan was doing all that he could because what did he want? We saw this in Revelation chapter 13, Matthew chapter 4, that Lucifer wanted worship, right? An angel couldn't receive worship, only God could receive worship. But we realize Lucifer was doing everything that he could to gain it. And notice this passage of Scripture that helps us to understand why it is that Lucifer hated the law of God so much. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Notice what Paul says here. And I believe that this principle is very clearly understood by Lucifer, and this is why Lucifer was so interested in getting people to, instead of following God, to follow himself. Notice what it says. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave who you obey, whether of sin leading to death, or of obedience leading to what? You know, Satan knew that if he could get people to drift away from following God, he could get them to do the opposite of following God, and that's what we call sin, right? If he could get them led into sin, that by following the paths of sin, that they would now be enslaved to the very one who had authority over the dominion of sin, and that was Satan himself. Satan said, you know, if I can't get their worship directly, I'm going to make sure that I just keep them from worshiping God. And if I can keep them from being obedient to God, I know that they'll be slaves to me. And Lucifer, this is why he was so concerned about them having the experience of not being obedient to God, but of leading to the sin of death that caused them to do away with the law of God. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, this is what we're getting ready to look at next, we're looking at why is this important in the book of Revelation. The books of Daniel and Revelation are drastically connected, and we're going to notice this as we look at the message on the Antichrist in a couple nights. 
The Antichrist is described in Daniel chapter 7 and in Revelation chapter 13. And we notice that there's very great similarities between the two. And when God is describing the last system of, that Satan is trying to get worshipped through, right? We looked at this the other night, that Satan sets up the system of the Antichrist, and that from receiving worship through that system, indirectly, since he gave it its power, he receives the worship for it. Now notice when Satan does that, one of the great things that Satan does through that system is this. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, and you can look it up and we will study this whole passage more, more in depth once we get there. It says that speaking of the Antichrist power, and this is the power that actuates the Antichrist, would be Satan himself, it says that he shall intend to do what? To change times and to change laws. Now whose laws do you think the Antichrist wants to change? Well, it would be God himself, right? Satan is at war with God. It's not a war between you and I, but we see that Satan is doing everything that he can so that he draws people away from the law of God, receiving the worship that only God deserves. Notice what this says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Speaking of the Antichrist here, Paul is describing the, the man of sin, which is commonly known to be the Antichrist himself. And notice the characteristic that Paul gives. He says, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of what? Sin be revealed. Now some of you have a different translation there. And it says the lawless one. Is that correct? Some of you see the man of sin or the lawless man is being revealed and then it continues on to say the son of perdition. You see, sin, or the Antichrist, is coming as one who wants to do away with the law. He's trying to get away from God's ways of doing things and setting up his own system of government so that by establishing his own government, that if we could follow it, that we would be giving allegiance to him. Now, as we look at this, we realize that all of this battle is not something over something small, but it's because Satan wants to be like God himself. That Satan desires the very worship that God has, and as he sees that people lovingly obey God, he says, if I can get them to stop being obedient to him and start following me, then I can finally get what I've always been looking for. And as we look in the book of Revelation, not only do we find that the, the devil is trying to do all that he can to draw people away from the law of God, but notice this description of God's people found in the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation chapter 14 we find a very interesting description about one of God's last day messages and God's last day people. And we're going to notice that just as Satan was trying to do away with the laws that God had given for our peace and happiness, that God is seeing a people who have not followed along with that. Notice what it says. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. But I don't know about you, but I want to make sure that I have the everlasting gospel. Amen? We don't want to be a part of people who believe cunningly devised fables, as Paul says. We want to make sure that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's preaching the everlasting gospel to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth the seas and the springs of water. You see, this last message is given to a bunch of people who have started to become 
kind of not so concerned with what God is calling them to do, and they're calling them back to the true worship of God. Now, how many of you want to be true worshipers of God, right? Jesus in John chapter 4 lists two worshipers, and he says, there will be some in the last days who will worship me in spirit, and they will worship me in what? In truth. And I don't know about you, but I want to make sure that we're worshiping Jesus in spirit and in truth. And Jesus talks about those who are worshiping him in the last days, and notice the characteristic that he gives. He says, here are the patients of the saints. Are saints good people or bad people? Good people, right? Here are the patients of the saints, and then he describes them. Here are those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the what? Faith of Jesus. Now I want to ask you a question. Is it possible to keep the commandments of God without the faith of Jesus? Absolutely not. Have you ever read what Paul says in Romans chapter 7? about the inability that he had to keep the law of God. Have you guys ever read that? He goes on in Romans chapter 7 and he says, you know, the things that I want to do, I can't. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I'm doing. And there seems to be another law working in me that's working in my members, and it's the law of sin and of death. But then at the end of the chapter, he says, praise be to God who gives us the what? The victory. In other words, Paul says, I have this experience on my own where I know that God's asking me to do something, but I am completely incapable of doing it. Have any of you ever felt that way before? You know God's asking you to do something, but you say, Lord, I just, I just can't do it. I can't experience how to have victory in this. And we wonder why in our Christian lives we sometimes walk through these times and don't experience the victory that God has. Well, I can tell you that it doesn't come by working harder. Does that make sense? It doesn't come by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and just staring at the law long enough. But really what it comes through is by faith in Jesus' ability to be able to perform it in our lives, right? Isn't that what the new covenant experience is? Jesus says that I will write my laws where? In your hearts. No longer is it this thing that you're just trying to do on your own, but it's something in which I'm intervening and placing it in your life. Now, if we notice that the law is under attack, it helps us to realize that we're living in a time where we need to be so focused to Jesus and so connected to Him that we can say, Lord, by faith in Your ability, I want to walk in agreement with the things that You tell me to, right? I want to do those things that You're calling me to and make You happy. Now, Jesus, we have a question. Did Jesus teach that the law was important for us today? Here's a very fair question, and I've heard it many times. Is the law something that's just for the Jews? Because if so, I don't want to be wasting our time in talking about it, right? So why don't we go straight to the source and ask Jesus, Jesus, is the law important to you? Well, let's notice one passage of Scripture. Do you guys know the first sermon that Jesus ever preached was the Sermon on the Mount, right? We're familiar with 5, 5 through 7. And it's the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he goes through all that. But right after he finishes that and tells them that they're the light of the world, notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, and I want you to see this in your own Bible so that you know I'm not just making it up. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, do not think that I came to do what? to destroy the law or the prophets, I did not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. Now you might ask, in what ways did Jesus fulfill the law? 
Well, it's very clear, and even as we looked at last night, that Jesus was really the fulfillment of the sacrificial system that the Jews had in place for thousands of years, right? That's why we no longer sacrifice a lamb, but we can say that Jesus is the fulfillment. He was the true lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And we realize that Jesus was never trying to destroy the laws that God had set up. Now, there might be a question, what law is Jesus upholding? Why don't we allow Jesus to answer that? Let's continue on in verse 18. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is what? Fulfilled. Jesus here is very clear about the fact that the law is still established and we're asking the question, what law is Jesus talking about? Notice in verse 21, as Jesus is still talking about this experience, he says, you have heard it said of those of old, you shall not do what? Murder or kill. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, is Jesus getting ready to throw away the law? Let's read what he says. But I say to you, Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, I want to ask you a question. What law is thou shalt not kill? Isn't that part of the Ten Commandments? The Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill. And Jesus says, I'm telling you that you've heard it said that you shouldn't kill someone, but what I'm telling you is if you're really understanding the spirit behind that law, you're not even supposed to be angry with your brother because you can be in danger of the judgment. You see, Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, but he helped us to understand the spirit of the law. Do you realize that? Now notice he continues on here, and he talks about another part. Number 20, verse 27. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not do what? Commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his where? In his heart. Does it sound to you like Jesus is doing away with the Ten Commandment law? No, Jesus isn't doing away with it. What had happened with the Jewish people is that they'd become so rigid about the very specifics of the law that they would say, oh, well, I'm, I'm not killing anyone, right? But I sure hate that Messiah man that's walking around claiming to be Jesus. And Jesus says, well, if you're claiming to be experiencing what the law is offering, then not only do you not physically kill someone, but you can't hate him either. And not only is it committing adultery, but it's those lustful thoughts that you're continuing on in your mind that are just as sinful. You see, the law was something that Jesus knew was important. And I want to ask you a question. Why did Jesus think it was so important? Could it be that Jesus was there in heaven and he saw Lucifer lose his position in heaven because of his disobedience to God and the breaking of his law? Jesus knew that obedience is what leads to life and happiness, right? And he knew that Satan had lost all of heaven because of disobedience. And he said, because of that, hey, you have to see this. In his very first sermon, he says, you have to understand that the law is still important today. Now he continues on and we realize that Jesus not only saw the fall in heaven, but Jesus was there in the Garden of Eden when he saw the two that he had created with his own hands. And it pained him so much as he saw how he had to lead them out of the garden because of why? Because God didn't love them? No, God still loved them. But because they didn't want to follow the things that God had said, and sin was the transgression of the law which found its way into Eve and Adam's heart. You see, Jesus knows that the very best way to life is by following the things that God has told us. Now the question might come because 
we often have the other extreme. Some people will say, well, the law has no significance in our life. It's not important. And then on the other hand, people say, well, you know, you're saved by keeping the law. Let me ask you a question. Are we saved by keeping the law? In other words, let me, let me say it this way. Is it because of my good works and all of the good things that I do that God just starts to love me so much and he says, you know what, I think you're ready for heaven. Notice what the Bible says. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be what? Justified in his sight. What does it mean to be justified? A simple version of that is just if I had never sinned, right? Jesus says that if you want to be freed from sin, does that come from the de- keeping the deeds of the law? No, no, no. Only Jesus, by His grace and mercy, can give us freedom from our sins, right? I can't work to be forgiven. I couldn't do enough good things to be forgiven. But we realize that it was Jesus dying on Calvary's cross that paid the penalty for my sin. Well, then the next question naturally comes, well, if I, if I don't have to keep it to be saved, then if the law can't justify us, then why do we need it, right? If that's not what saves me, then why do I need it? Well, notice what the Bible says. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. I would not have known sin except through the what? The law. For I would not have known covetousness, right? The tenth commandment. Unless the law said, you shall not what? Covet. You see, the question I feel that we do, or the problem that we have is that we often ask the wrong question, right? I feel like sometimes in Christianity we have this attitude of how little can I do and still make it to the kingdom of heaven? How would you like it if every time I came home I I said to my wife, hey, what do I have to do in order to stay married? Well, can you do the dishes? Well, if I, if I don't do the dishes, is that a, is that a deal breaker? You know, are, are you going to leave if I do? No, I mean, I'm not going to leave. You. Oh, okay, well, forget it then. I'm not going to do the dishes, right? Now, how healthy would that relationship be? Why do I do the dishes? You do it because you love someone, right? And you realize that sometimes in Christianity, we're asking the wrong question. We're not keeping the law of God to be saved because we realize that it's only Jesus who can save us. But what's interesting to note is that Jesus says that without obedience, it's impossible to enjoy the realms of heaven. You know, how is it that God could take us to heaven if we continued in a life of disobedience and bring us to the place where Satan was cast out for disobedience? Does that make any sense? It would just start the rebellion in heaven all over again. And God is saying, hey, I'm not looking at a people who are going to be saved by what they do, right? Because we can't do that. But I'm looking for a people who have faith in Jesus enough, who allow the new covenant experience to happen in their life, and who allow the law of God to be written on their heart and lived out in their lives by the faith that they have in Jesus. You know, the law as we see it here is that the law is what helps us to see sin. We realize that sin is the very thing that crucified our Savior. Sin is the thing that cost the life of Jesus Christ. And how many of us want to say, well, I want to hold on to the things that's killing the Son of God? Absolutely not. When we come to the experience of knowing Jesus and seeing everything that He's done for us, we start to say, Lord, how can I do those things that please you, not how can I continue in those things that killed you? And as we come to the law, we see, Lord, my heart is messed up, right? 
Lord, I really need that experience. I need to be more loving to the person around me. I can't hate my brother anymore because you say that that's just like murdering. But Father, you know that I have a problem with this, and Lord, I need you to change my heart. And as we're led to the law, James calls it that as from coming to the law, it's almost like seeing ourselves in a mirror. That we're able to recognize the dirt that's on our face so that by the grace of God, He can clean it off. Do you recognize what I'm saying? Paul says that he wouldn't have known sin without the law. In other words, it's that mirror that he sees that exposes his sinfulness. But I want to ask you the question, is it the law that cleans him up? No, we see that Jesus, he tells us that it's what the law was weak to do that God sending his own son was able to perform through the death of Calvary's cross. The law couldn't clean us up. But it was only through Jesus and His grace that He offered that He could ever experience the revival, the revival of having sin removed from our law. You see, the law exposes it. Jesus cleans us. And this is why we need the Gospel and we need Jesus in our lives today. You know, as we come to the experience of seeing our need, as we see the law of God, all that it's supposed to do is lead us to the feet of Jesus. Now, oftentimes, the problem is, is that Satan, when, he, when we know that, we're done, that we've done something evil, he begins to fill our minds with guilt. And if he can fill our minds with so much guilt, instead of the law leading us to Jesus, it actually leads us away from him, right? Because we think, oh man, I can't come to God. You know, I'm not good enough. I'm so messed up. But Jesus tells us that whosoever will come to him, that Whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. God doesn't want us to be running away from Him in fear that He won't forgive us, but He wants to see that as we see the sin in our lives, that we don't run from God, but that we run to Him. And as we run to God, we realize that only Jesus can make us right. Now another question is, does grace do away with God's law? You know, when Jesus came, He brought grace with Him. He, was, he died on Calvary's cross that we could experience grace, right? Now we realize that the people in the Old Testament, it says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. In other words, there was an experience that by faith Abraham believed. It wasn't by works in the Old Testament, but it was through faith. And we have this experience that in the New Testament, that God is calling people to be people who are not under the law, but under what? Grace. Now, what does it mean to be under the law? When Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 6, he talks about being under the condemnation of the law, right? And when Jesus came, it's no longer that we have to be smashed under the condemnation of the law, but through the grace that Jesus offers to us, we can experience the new life in Him, right? And this is the experience that God wants for each one of us. Now, there's a story that I'm a little bit ashamed to tell you, but I, I think it helps us understand this point, does grace do away with the law? When I was 16 years old, I was very excited because I had just gotten a new car. Well, it was new to me at least. And it was a little Honda Civic. And anyone who knows what a Honda Civic is, it doesn't have a lot of power, but you know, I was experimenting with what it could do. And I remember I was driving home, and I lived in New Mexico at the time, and so we had these nice long hills, and I thought, man, I can really get some momentum going down this hill, because I'm going to need help. It only has a four-cylinder. And so as I'm going down this hill, I'm looking at the speedometer, and the, the speed limit there was, well, it was 70. And my speedometer goes 70, 80, 85, 90, 95, 100, 100. Well, anyways, it ended up at 125. I don't know what happened. But I just wanted to see how fast this car could go, right? 
Now, it just so happens that as I'm going down this hill at 125 miles an hour, really enjoying myself, coming down the hill the other direction was a man who was doing his job, and it was a police officer. And I remember seeing that police officer almost right as he was getting ready to pass me, and so I go to slam the brakes, and before I do that, he flashes his lights and points his little spotlight at me. And I think, oh, man. Well, there's a law in New Mexico that if you're speeding 20 miles over the speed limit, you can go to jail time. Well, I was, I was thankful I was 16, so I couldn't get as hard of a deal. But the cop flashes his lights, and I immediately slow down, and I come to the point where I was actually doing under the speed limit because I wanted to make sure that he thought I was an obedient citizen. And I'm just waiting for him to come, waiting for him to come, and I realize that something happened, and I look in my mirror, and he just keeps driving. Now, I want to ask you a question. Because the officer didn't allow me to experience the punishment of the law, he gave me grace, did that do away with the law that was established there? No, the law was still there. It was still proven law that I was supposed to only do 70 miles an hour. Now, I have reformed my driving habits, so I, I hope you don't take that as a license to go speeding. But I have realized that the, even though it said 70 miles an hour, he allowed me to experience grace when I had broken the law. Now, is this what God does for us as well? He realizes that the law is so important, that the law is what brings peace and happiness, right? Delight yourselves in the laws of the Lord. And you read through Psalm 119, and you hear how David says that he delights in the law of the Lord day and night, and it's become his meditation, and it's so joyful to him. And why is that? It's because he's realized that it's the very thing that brings him joy and peace in life today. But I'm thankful for the fact that any time that we fall and we sin, that there's grace for us. Amen? You know, Jesus tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, He says, My little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. In other words, God doesn't want us to sin, right? Why does He want us to continue in the thing that caused heartache in the beginning? He says, These things I write unto you, that you sin not. But if you do sin, I love these words, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, how many of you are thankful for that? Now, we see tonight that God does have a law. That God does have something that He's calling us to do. He knows it's the best way of life. But He says, hey, when you fall, that's why the grace of Jesus is here. You know, God is willing to forgive all who come to Him to the uttermost. You know, if Jesus, if God could have just done away with the, His law, why would God send His Son to suffer the cruel death if all that He had to do was with the stroke of magic was change His law? Does that make sense? You know, Jesus died for sin. And sin is the transgression of the law. And if God could have just done away with the law before Jesus died, why didn't He just do that instead of sending Jesus to die? But we realize that the law of God is the very foundation of His government. That He's not going to do away with the things that bring peace and happiness in life. But really, instead of doing away with it, we see that God provided a way out of it for those who have broken His law. You see, God promises that those who have experienced sin, that He would give Jesus, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the beauty of the gospel that God gives to us. But notice that it's not only that God forgives us, right? 
But notice we looked at this passage last night, and it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says, Who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree, that we having what? Died to sin, might do what? Live to righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. You see, Jesus not only died to give us grace so that we could be forgiven when we fall, but Jesus died so that He could give us the power to overcome those very things that are hurting us most. You see, God doesn't want us just to continue falling and hurting ourselves continually, but He desires to give us the power through Jesus Christ to be able to have a victorious Christian life. You know, He continues on in Romans chapter 3, verse 31. He says, do we then make void the law through faith? And notice Paul's answer, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Then what is the role of grace in the life of the Christian? We've already talked about the two main factors. And one is that it gives us unmerited favor. That just like the police officer was willing to give me grace when I didn't deserve it, God does that to us when we break His law. But notice what else Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 brings out. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have what? Grace. Now, how many of you want grace? This is what we need, amen? And notice what it continues on to describe grace as. Let us, re- let us have grace by which we may do what? Serve God acceptably with reverence and with fear. You know the call in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7 is fear God and give glory to Him. And when we look at the law of God, we say there's no way I can do that. I'm a sinful person. All my righteousness is as filthy rags. But as I look to the cross of Calvary, I realize that Jesus empowers me by His grace not only to receive forgiveness of sins, but also to receive the power to serve God effectively. Acceptably, sorry. You know, this is the beauty of the cross. That God doesn't want us just to continue to fall to sin, but He wants us to experience the power of the Gospel. Now, I have a quick illustration here, and I need eight volunteers, just very briefly, who would be willing to hold something. It's nothing painful or embarrassing. And if we could just have a few volunteers, maybe there's some who are willing, uh, maybe there's some who aren't willing, but you would still be willing to do it. Um, just to come and hold a piece of paper. This is something that I think will help bring this together, what we've talked about this evening. Now, we're just going to need you to stay in line in whatever order you come. And so if Mike, you'll come over here. And I want you to hold your paper down just so everyone doesn't get too much of a head start. And thank you very much for your willingness to help. All right, and if we can squeeze that way so they don't run into the projector screen. Oh, you get a good one. Oh, sorry for that one. All right, we have two more, or one more. All right, here we go. Now, this is going to help us understand something very quickly. We understand how important is the law of God in our understanding of the Christian life. Now, this is the first paper, and why don't you go ahead and show it to us. People. Now, how many of you are people here? We're all, we're all humans, I hope. And we have people come to church. Now, why do people go to church? Spend time with God, right? We, we, we hear the word, all these different things. Now, maybe this is an egotistic thing. I've, I've gone through this, but it's not just because I'm a preacher that I'm saying this, but I think this is really the essence of church, is that people come to church to hear a preacher, right? You can go anywhere else to fellowship. I mean, that's important and all that, but we need to hear the word of God. So people come to church to hear a preacher, and what's the preacher supposed to be preaching about? 
the gospel. And as the preacher is preaching about the gospel, the gospel tells us about a Savior. Can you see that there? And as we see about the Savior, we see the beauty of who Jesus is. And as we see His beauty, we see His grace that He's willing to freely offer to us. And as we see His grace, we see that His grace is to help us to deal with the problem of sin, right? And as it deals with the problem of sin, now we've realized in this, this study together and through Scripture in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, that sin is the what? Transgression of the law. So let's recap. People go to church to hear a preacher preach about the Gospel, which tells us about a Savior who gives us grace to forgive sins and to give us, which sin is the transgression of the law. Now, I want to ask you a question. What happens if we do away with the law of God? Why don't you go ahead and just put that sign down, Carl, and let's try to, let's try to figure this out together. So people come to church to hear a preacher preach about the gospel, and the gospel is the good news about a Savior who gives us His grace to save us from our sin. And sin is, well, if there's no law, is there sin? Okay, well, I guess you're going to have to put that one down too. So we notice this. Now, people come to church to hear about a preacher sharing the good news of the gospel about a Savior who gives us His grace, and His grace helps us, well, what does it really do? Does it just make us feel good? I mean, what's the purpose of the grace of Jesus if there's no sin? Well, maybe you're just going to have to put the grace of Jesus away because we don't need that anymore if we don't have the law and we don't have sin. So people are now just coming to church to hear a preacher talk about the gospel, which points us to the Savior who saves us from our... Well, we don't need saving if there's no sin. You guys realize what's going on? And as you realize what happens is before you know it, you have people coming to church and you don't need the gospel either, and you actually don't even need a preacher, and now you just have a social club. And this is what oftentimes can happen, and you guys can sit down and you can take your signs with you. That's your, that's your uh, prize for helping out tonight. But we realize that without the gospel and without the law of God, that the gospel would be insignificant to our understanding, right? We realize that the gospel would be incomplete if we didn't realize that God had a standard for us to live to. And thank you for your help. The reality is, is that the reason why we keep the law of God, and we've looked at this, is not because we are saved by it. We realize that we can't be saved in disobedience, right? It's only through Jesus creating the willingness to do His will in our own hearts that we experience salvation. But we realize that the reason why we do it is because we love Jesus. You know, John, Jesus says this in John chapter 14 and verse 15. Jesus says, if you what? Love me, keep my commandments. Now this is why I wash the dishes for my wife, right? Not because it might be a deal breaker. This is why I keep the commandments of God because we realize that if I love him, I naturally want to do the things that he asks for. He continues on and he says in John chapter 14, verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them it is He who does what? Loves me. Is it possible for us to love Jesus without doing the things that He tells us? Jesus says, no, if you love me, you naturally do those things out of a heart of love because you love me so much. You know, Revelation, in describing the last day people one more time, it gives us a little more pointed view about who Satan is really angry against. This is the last passage that we're looking at tonight. 
And it's Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And it tells us that the dragon, now who is the dragon? We saw this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9, that the dragon is Satan, right? And it says that the dragon was enraged with the woman. Now, this woman, as you read through Revelation chapter 12, is the same one who gave birth to the male child who ascended up to heaven, which is Jesus himself. And the woman is the church of God who is on earth today. And we'll study that more later. But the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Now, who is Satan specifically mad at? It's the offspring of Jesus. And notice the characteristics. Who keep the commandments of God and have the what? The testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, Satan, all that he wants to do is receive worship. And if he can keep you from worshiping God, he knows that indirectly he will be receiving worship himself. And we see in the book of Revelation that the question is really over loyalty of who we will worship. Are we going to worship Jesus because we love him? Are we going to allow ourselves to be slaves to sin because we can't control our own passions? We see it's Jesus who can work in our lives to help us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Isn't that what we saw last night? Now I know many of you as you've looked at this tonight that you might be thinking, you know, how is it possible for me to keep the law of God. Now I want to tell you one thing, and this is what Paul says, that it's impossible. On our own. But through Jesus Christ, how many things are possible? All things are possible. Now who should the focus be on? Should it be on ourselves and the keeping of the law? Or should it be on Jesus, the only one that can allow us to have these things filled in our life? You know, Jesus tells us that he's the way, the truth, and the life. That there's no experience that we can have life without Jesus. There's no way that we can be obedient to God without Jesus first giving that desire to us. And tonight there might be some of you who are kind of discouraged and say, well, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, God was still requiring us to keep the law. And that's a little bit discouraging because now I realize that there's something that I'm judged by. But here's the reality. Is that Jesus is there right beside our side. Every time we need his help, he's more than willing. He's there. He's able to save to the uttermost. All that come to God through Him is what Hebrews tells us. And Jesus is more than willing to give us His grace, not only to forgive us, but also to empower us to live a life of obedience to Him. I don't know about you, but I say, Lord, because of what You've done for me on Calvary's cross, because of Your faithfulness, Lord, I just want to be loving towards You. How many of you want to say, Lord, I just want to make You happy. I don't want to break Your heart. I don't want to do those things that cause separation between you and myself, right? Our sins have separated us from God is what Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 tells us. But now we say, Lord, I want the new covenant experience. I want you to write your laws in my heart and in my mind. I want to experience what it's like to have the power of Jesus working through me. And Lord, I really want to be a part of those people in the last days who have the faith of Jesus and who are keeping the commandments of God. Is that your desire this evening? Lord, help this to be my experience. Now, as we studied this this evening, some of you may be wondering, what does this have to do with Revelation? But I want to tell you something, that what we're going to realize over the next couple nights is that this is the central theme surrounding Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 13, and many of those things. And many of us want to say, Lord, I don't want to be those people who are deceived, but I want to know your truth. And as we see the building blocks of truth and we say, Lord, I just want to follow those things that you've said, God is going to continue to lead us into all truth. Amen? That's what he promises that he'll do through his spirit. 
So tonight, as we've committed our hearts to Him, we can have assurance that the Lord is giving us the strength that we need and the grace that we need to live by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Why don't we go ahead and bow our heads for prayer as we close tonight. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that, Lord, you, you love us so much that you're willing to give us guidelines for life that will keep us safe. Lord, we realize the pain of killing and of lying and of all these different things that you've told us aren't good for us. And we realize, Lord Jesus, that we want you moving in our lives to help us be obedient to you. Not because we just have to, but Lord, because we want to. Jesus has been so merciful to us, and Father, we just want to be faithful and make you smile. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength through the power of your Spirit to live an obedient life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.